0: FOSS Corporation, LLC. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments. This is season six. So sit back and enjoy. Listen to some stories of the weird, of the odd, of the strange and unusual Some ghost stories, some cryptid stories, some just strange stuff. Again, welcome to season six. Enjoy. Welcome, my Mysterians, to another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments, broadcasting from the great state of Texas. This Thursday, November 24th, will be our celebration of Thanksgiving. When did Thanksgiving begin? Sometime in 1621, the Plymouth colonists, the Puritans that left England for religious freedom, and the Wampanoag Indian tribe, shared an autumn harvest feast that is acknowledged today as one of the first Thanksgiving celebrations in the colonies. For more than two centuries, days of Thanksgiving were celebrated by individual colonies and states. It wasn't until 1863, in the midst of the darkness of the American Civil War, that President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a national Thanksgiving Day to be held each November. As you remember in September of 1620 a small ship called the Mayflower left Plymouth England carrying 102 passengers an assortment of religious separatists seeking a new home where they could freely practice their faith and other individuals lured by the promise of prosperity and land ownership in the new world after a treacherous and uncomfortable crossing that lasted 66 days they dropped anchor near the tip of cape cod far north of their intended destination at the mouth of the hudson river one month later the mayflower crossed massachusetts bay where the pilgrims as they are now commonly known began the work of establishing a village at plymouth throughout that first brutal winter most of the colonists remained on board the ship where they suffered from exposure, scurvy, and outbreaks of contagious disease. Only half of the Mayflower's original passengers and crew lived to see their first New England spring. In March, the remaining settlers moved ashore where they received an astonishing visit from a member of the Abenaki tribe who greeted them in English. Several days later, he returned with another Native American, Squanto, a member of the Patuxet tribe who had been kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold into slavery before escaping to London and returning to his homeland on an exploratory expedition. Squanto taught the pilgrims, weakened by malnutrition and illness, how to cultivate corn, extract sap from maple trees, thank you Squanto, and catch fish in the rivers and avoid poisonous plants. He also helped the settlers forge an alliance with the Wampanoag, a local tribe which endured for more than 50 years and remains one of the sole examples of harmony between European colonists and Native Americans. In November of 1621, after the Pilgrim's first corn harvest proved successful, Governor William Bradford organized a celebratory feast and invited a group of the fledgling colony's Native American allies, including the Wampanoag chief Massasoit, now remembered as America's first Thanksgiving. Although the pilgrims themselves may not have used the term at the time, the festival lasted for three days. While no record exists of the first Thanksgiving's exact menu, Much of what we know about what happened at the first Thanksgiving comes from pilgrim chronicler Edward Winslow, who wrote, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together, after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help beside, served the company for almost a week at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. Historians have suggested that many of the dishes were likely prepared using traditional Native American spices and cooking methods. Because the Pilgrims had no oven and the Mayflower sugar supply had dwindled by the fall of 1621, The meal did not feature pies, cakes, or other desserts, which have become a hallmark of contemporary celebrations, and may I say contemporary overindulgence, of which I'm guilty. Pilgrims held their second Thanksgiving celebration in 1623 to mark the end of a long drought that had threatened the year's harvest and prompted Governor Bradford to call for a religious fast days of fasting and thanksgiving on an annual or occasional basis became common practice in other new england settlements as well the subject of today's message today's story is the fact that evil does not rest sin does not take a holiday bad things happen on holidays days of high joy of of great thankfulness thus it is with thanksgiving and that's the history that i want to impart to you about things particularly disappearances that have happened that have become famous over the years so we must go back to see what our story is going to be about and What it is going to be about is, like I said, Thanksgiving mysteries, particularly Thanksgiving disappearances. There's also Thanksgiving deaths, which I find particularly sad. Personally, we look at Thanksgiving as a time of fellowship with family or friends. A time, yes, uh, to be thankful to God for what He's given us, for what He's kept us away from, for what He's kept away from us. There's a lot of tradition connected to the celebration of Thanksgiving, especially here in the US. There are songs to sing. One song is my favorite, as it allows my sick sense of humor to make the lyrics fit this week's subject, disappearances and murders. My version goes, over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. And the Jackson family was never Seen again, Uh, memories. To begin this week's episode on subject, we go back to 1971 and a very familiar mystery. It's the only unsolved case of hijacking and air piracy in U.S. history, and it happened the night before Thanksgiving in 1971. A man calling himself Dan Cooper, and for some reason later called DB by the media for unknown reasons, but the name stuck, boarded Northwest Airlines flight number 305 in Portland, bound for Seattle. Mid-flight, he revealed to the flight attendant that he had a bomb in his carry-on bag. He showed it to her and promptly conducted the politest hijacking ever. Could D.B. Cooper have been Canadian? We don't know. He got the plane to land in Seattle and demanded $200,000 in cash and two sets of parachutes. After these demands were met by the airline and the FBI, Cooper released the passengers and instructed the flight crew to take off and head for Mexico City. Then things changed. Shortly after this flight began, Cooper sent the flight attendant to the cockpit for safety, strapped on one of the parachutes, and opened the plane's rear stairs and jumped into legend. No trace of Cooper was ever found. Some of the money he stole was recovered from the forest outside Portland many years later But the man himself and his true identity remain a mystery, as much today as it was in 1971. Cooper became a legend and a folk hero because of his boldness and polite demeanor, and the FBI gave up looking for him altogether, closing its case on Cooper in 2009 without ever having solved it. Now having the weird sense of humor that I have, the true story's ending reminds me of something that has become a classic around Thanksgiving. The 1978 Thanksgiving episode of WKRP in Cincinnati. If you're not familiar with this show, WKRP was a station in trouble, facing possible ruin. A new programming director comes in, changes up its deathly programming into a hard-hitting rock and roll format, but it still had its quirks. For the station manager, and the owner's son, decides to provide Cincinnati with a special treat for Thanksgiving. He's planning on dropping live turkeys from a helicopter over a popular shopping center the day before Thanksgiving. Interesting in theory, but sorely lacking in execution. And execution is the right word to use since while wild turkeys can fly, they are a low-to-the-ground beast and tame turkeys aren't supposed to be able to fly. We've had a few and yes, they've been able to cover short distances, but not like we're thinking here. Comes the day and the helicopter is overhead. Trailing a banner, poorly chosen. Happy Thanksgiving from WKRP. A crowd begins filling the parking lot, and suddenly the turkeys begin to fall. It descends into a scene of, of carnage as the turkeys begin to hit the ground, the cars, and even some people. Station newsman, the milk toast Les Nessman is providing coverage for the incident, and his commentary goes from hopeful and happy to dark and sad, even recreating a similar broadcast to the 1937 report of the dirigible Hindenburg, down to the phrase, oh, the humanity. After having returned to the station in shame, Mr. Carlson, who is the manager, explains to the program manager, As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. Could D.B. Cooper have suffered a similar fate? I mean, seriously, could he have been given a faulty parachute? The Blount family of Lake Worth, Texas, were returning from a Thanksgiving outing in 1985, when 15-year-old daughter, Angela Blount, Found a briefcase on the porch of their mobile home. When opened, the briefcase exploded, killing Angela, her father Joe, and her cousin Michael Columbus. Ten years later, a man named Michael Tony was convicted of the crime, but his conviction was overturned because the prosecution withheld evidence that contradicted witness testimony and exonerated Tony bad thing to do, guys. Some have speculated that the blounts weren't the intended targets of the mystery bomber and that the device was intended for one of their neighbors instead. Nonetheless, no further evidence has been produced in the case and the entire affair remains a total mystery. Remind me to never ever contemplate starting a career in rap music. Number one, I don't talk that fast. But number two, it seems to be a bit more dangerous than possibly taking a couple of military tours in Afghanistan. How many young men and women have entered the business only to have lost their lives because of it? According to one list, there have been at least 48 people murdered who were in this business from 1987 up till 2020. And while prevalently these were US citizens, we don't have a monopoly on it happening, nor apparently is it only males. But for our purposes here, let's tell the story of one. The young man's name was James Tapp. You might remember him better as a New Orleans-based rapper using the stage name Soldier Slim. He was on the verge of mega fame when his life was cut short by a gunman on Thanksgiving Eve 2003. Though a suspect was arrested who claimed he had been hired to kill Tapp for $10,000, the case was dropped due to a lack of witnesses. Tapp's murder remains officially unsolved. Including the identity of the person who hired the alleged hitman. Sadly enough, Soldier Slim's song Slow Motion, a collaboration with rapper Juvenile, became a Billboard number one hit six months after his death. It is a real tragedy when people go missing, especially at a young age karen marie mitchell disappeared from eureka california on thanksgiving day of 1997. she was off school for the holiday and she had just left her place of employment and stopped by a shoe store owned by her aunt and legal guardian annie casper karen visited briefly with casper then headed home to prepare for the holiday festivities but she never made it there A witness claims he saw Karen get into a blue sedan, driven by an older white man shortly after leaving the mall where her aunt worked. This man has never been identified, although two high-profile suspects were examined in connection with the case. The first was convicted murderer Wayne Adam Ford, who fit the witness's description of Karen's kidnapper. but. Though he confessed to several murders, Ford denied any involvement in Karen's case. Police were never able to tie him to the crime. The second suspect was Robert Durst, subject of the recent HBO documentary titled The Jinx. Durst appears to have visited Casper's store several times and was in Eureka! the day that Karen disappeared. But like Ford, police have been unable to definitively link Durst to the crime. Karen's fate remains unknown. You know, I, I can't claim to be 100% pure in many things, many ways, but a murder makes no sense to me to begin with. I understand that some people need little or no provocation to commit murder and mayhem, and that some have a compulsion to commit the same. But when a questionable death investigation is mishandled, dare I say botched, by lackadaisical investigators or by improperly trained ones, then that death makes less sense than normal. At first glance, The Thanksgiving death of Portland, Oregon public defender Nancy Bergeson looked like natural causes. There were no signs of trauma or other marks on her body, which was discovered in her living room. But an autopsy determined that she had been strangled to death with a soft object, possibly a scarf, on Thanksgiving Day 2009. The circumstances of her murder are unknown, and because police initially acted on the assumption that her death had been natural, crucial evidence was likely lost from the crime scene in the early days of the investigation. Her case remains open, with a high probability of it never being solved. A murder is senseless enough But for that murder to have been perpetrated upon a young child is reprehensible and whoever committed it needs to spend an eternity in torment. On Thanksgiving Day, 1977, six-year-old Beth Lynn Barr was walking home from school in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania to spend the holiday with her family, but she never arrived. Because Beth's father was a local cop, The police leapt immediately into action when Beth didn't come home. But it was all to no avail. Beth was never found. A witness later reported seeing Beth being carried to a blue sedan driven by an older white man and the car was traced to a local rental agency. Is there something about killers having to drive blue sedans? The agency's records showed that the car had not been loaned out that day. It was possible that the perpetrator had stolen the car for use in his crime and returned it to the agency before anyone noticed it was gone. Sadly, Beth's skeletal remains were discovered in a shallow, unmarked grave near Monroeville, Pennsylvania. Two years later, she had been stabbed several times in the chest. Her killer remains at large, identity unknown. Was it a crime of opportunity? Was it a revenge killing by someone her father arrested? No one knows. Shortly after 10 p.m. on Thanksgiving night, 2002, an unknown assailant fired shots through the curtain windows of Joseph and Evangeline Britt's home in Tacoma, Washington. The Brits had been hosting a large Thanksgiving dinner gathering with about 25 people attending. When the shooting stopped, two of those people, a 19-year-old female and a 5-year-old child, were dead. Two other attendees were wounded, but survived their injuries. Witnesses saw a man with dark hair fleeing the scene in a pickup truck, but he was never identified and his motive for firing into a house full of Thanksgiving revelers remains a mystery as well. I think of all the scenarios of murder, the phantom murderer is the most unsettling of them. Without a suspect to question, without a culprit to interrogate, there is never an answer for those left behind. Finally, one of the oldest Thanksgiving murders occurred almost a century ago in Schenectady County, New York. John H. Woodruff, who was a game protector for the county, I assume that means a game warden, left his home on Thanksgiving Day 1919 to patrol his area and never returned. His body was found almost two years later in April 1921 buried in a shallow grave near a creek bed. The top half of Woodruff's skull had been detached, indicating that he had been killed by a blow from a large object, possibly an axe. Woodruff's wife claimed he had received, and then destroyed, a threatening letter a few months before his disappearance, and a witness reported seeing Woodruff arguing with another man on the day in question. Woodruff and the man then walked off together into the woods. It was the last time anyone saw Woodruff alive. No suspect or motive was ever identified in Woodruff's case. After almost 100 years, his murder has remained unsolved. So there you have it. Murder has no respite. Sin takes no time off evil hovers on a daily basis people disappear a lot some are found some are never found and some are never found alive that's it for this week i wish all of you a very happy thanksgiving day be it in the midst of a large family gathering or a quiet meal with just your spouse or a silent lunch with you and your pets And if you pull the short straw and have to work, then more blessings to you. Have a great week. Signing off from Texas, this is your host, Terry from Texas. See you soon.